much, Maria. Um, and thanks for stepping up to be a district officer as well. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Greg. This year, on October 5th, I'll be celebrating my 10th anniversary of my first meeting in Alana. My two home groups meet from 9.30 to 11 on Tuesday and Friday mornings at the Unity Church in Oak Park, located at 405 North Euclid Avenue. It's nice to see so many friendly faces out there, uh, and I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, I recently listened to a talk by Rick B., which he gave from our September 2010 assembly. He told the group there that no one ever came to him after sharing at an open meeting to tell him he did a bad job. Well, I can't make the same claim to fame. The very last time I spoke at an open meeting, not just one, but three of the people there told me how disturbed they were by what I had to say, all at different times. Well, that's my warning in case anyone wants to leave now before I go any further. Don't say you weren't warned. For the first 36 and a half years of my life, I lived in a yellow brick bungalow on the 1200 block of North Harvey Avenue in Oak Park. My parents bought the house when my brother and sister were three and two years old. I'm the baby of the family. As a matter of fact, I've got some pictures here that uh, I'd like to pass around. (laughs) Just for proof. The house had green ivy on the front walls and a brown awning that we put up every spring and took down every winter. My dad owned a family shoe store in Oak Park, which was started by my grandpa when my dad was four years old. Prior to that, my grandpa had a tavern at Racine Avenue in Chicago, and they served nickel beers and free sandwiches every lunchtime. But unlike some other Italians of his era, Prohibition got him into a new line of business. That's right, my family came to Oak Park in 1919 because of a new liquor law. My mom had two older brothers and grew up in a single parent home. Her father died when she was only one. She was very proud of her Irish heritage Her mom was a fire and brimstone Catholic, who I am told was very adept at identifying all of the sins of her daughter, who was kicked out of Trinity High School more than once. After her mom died, my mom pursued my dad, who most of her friends thought to be an unreformable bachelor, 11 years older than she. But here I am, so something must have worked out well. Growing up, I wasn't exposed to much alcoholism. One of my Irish uncles drank a lot of beer, but we only saw him twice a year. My two cousins moved in with us once for a couple of weeks when my aunt went home to Germany, but my uncle followed her there and she came home. There was, however, mental illness in my home. 
My dad was a diagnosed but untreated manic depressive. That's bipolar to you younger folks. And my mom had a nervous breakdown and was institutionalized for a couple of weeks when I was six after several days of crying in her room. Her recovery through therapy involved a lot of doing things for herself, and some describe this as being self-centered. Just before her death last year, I discovered that she'd been introduced to Emotions Anonymous during her therapy. From this point on, I developed a fierce sense of independence and had a very competitive spirit with a need to win and be the best. When I was in the seventh grade, I became a type 1 diabetic, and ever since, there have been battalions of people I love telling me that I had to be in control of my blood sugar, or else. It was never clearly spelled out to me what this or else stuff was, but I had a feeling that it was related to me turning into the kind of monster I used to have nightmares about, and for this reason, they might stop loving me. For the rest of her life, my mom modeled me for me the difficulties forced by a parent with a child who had a disease. I became even more determined to never need help from, or heaven forbid, become a burden to someone else. In the midst of a break from college, for both of us, I fell in love with a previously unmet high school classmate when we worked together at a local restaurant in Banquet Hall. On our first date, we went to see Joffrey Ballet a week before my 21st birthday. And five and a half years later, we were married. We set up our home in the house on Harvey Avenue and eventually purchased it for my parents, who were both remarried and living with their second spouses. Mom had divorced Dad after 29 years and was married three months later. Dad was again pursued, this time by a widow he had dated before World War II, and they married a year and a half before I did. A year after I was married, I graduated from law school, and a year later, um, uh, went to work for a general practice law firm. I was there for two years before buying my own practice. A law school friend of mine had encouraged the opportunity as a joint venture, and when he bailed out, at the last minute, I still made the deal, believing it to be a way to have an independent career. The practice was focused on traffic and DUI defense litigation, and I expanded it to include real estate transactions, personal, corporate, and property taxation, and regulatory compliance issues. Two weeks after celebrating our fourth anniversary, we had our first child, who was to be the first of three within less than a four-year span. I was officing out of our home at the time, with my wife having a corporate career. I became the at-home parent. We used an in-home daycare provider down the street and grandparent help when I needed to go to court. Despite a door-to-door petition drive in below zero temperatures and an impassioned plea by me before the village board alleging violation of their own liquor control statute, Oak Park granted 
license to sell packaged liquor four doors from my home. Our oldest child had just finished kindergarten at my grade school. I asked the board to not allow another liquor law to chase the last regalia out of the village of Oak Park, but they didn't listen. And we moved to River Forest, not far away from where my wife grew up, just down the street as a matter of fact. My role of primary parent expanded as her work travel responsibilities increased and our parents aged. I shopped, cooked, and I'm proud to say that one of my Illinois friends recently tagged me with the uh, moniker, the singing gourmet. <laughs> Coach baseball, officer, the PTA, attended and recorded school athletic events, taxied, planned birthday and holiday parties, and generally controlled, controlled the day-to-day controlled, really controlled, the day-to-day happenings of my family, which also included my widowed parents who had moved back to town. There was a history of alcoholism in my wife's family, and her dad died when she was 16, leaving eight kids. Prior to eighth grade, both alcohol and substance abuse issues started for our oldest child. For the next three-plus years, Every imaginable offensive, preventative, corrective, therapeutic, and rehabilitative action possible was attempted to combat and defeat the family disease. Every single battle waged was unfortunately lost. As primary custodial parent, I felt particularly burdened by the possibility that I was the cause that I have failed in all efforts to find a cure and that I was defeated by a foe I could not control. Faced with escalatingly dangerous behavior and having exhausted local options, we had our 16-year-old escorted from our home in the middle of the night and brought to a residential high school and treatment facility in the mountains of Idaho. Sixteen days later, and three days before my wife left to start divorce proceedings, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I've never stopped. I was isolated by the disease because there was no one I could talk to about my concerns without burdening them or negatively affecting their view of someone else. I was the poster boy for how the fear of failing others could destroy your self-esteem. In my practice, I no longer found a sense of satisfaction when the outcomes were favorable, but instead thought that I was at fault when they were not. Yes, she was driving with a blood alcohol content three times the legal limit, on the wrong side of the road, exceeding the speed limit by 30 miles an hour, with no headlights on, at night, but I still should have been able to convince the court to grant her a lighter sentence. I was shooting on myself a lot back then. Until I came to Illinois, my pride and lack of humility prevented me from realizing that there may be at least a few things in this life that are beyond my ability to control. 
I felt so miserable about my failures and the loser I had become. Just the idea of self-love made me sick, both spiritually and emotionally. Without the ability to love myself, I could not give to others the love they needed back from me. I thought I was doing everyone a favor by staying in my own world and not infecting them with my sorrow. I took a variety of medications for a while, but none of them ever changed the way I felt. And I did see a therapist for over a year. It was nice to be able to get some help and advice on dealing with my depression. My wife had a friend from school who sang at her wedding who suggested that we go to Elanon. Unfortunately, recently she had a daughter who died of an overdose. But I decided to go to Elanon because I told myself that if I knew something about the 12 steps, that it could help me to communicate better with my relative out west in rehab. At my first meeting, I heard a lot that I could ask God to grant me serenity, that I didn't cause it, could not control it, and could not cure it. Step 11 carried a special significance when the steps were read. The knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out? Wow! To accept and respect the fact that everyone in the world had the ability to make their own choices free from my interference. That everyone there, mostly women, already loved me in a very special way and that I would come to love them equally. And that while I may have come to that meeting because of the alcoholic, that I certainly would keep coming back for my own well-being. Once upon a time, I believed that other people were more important than me and that the worst thing I could do was to hurt another. I was always tough enough to take it, but this devalued my own worth to myself. I have learned from the experience, strength, and hope of Al-Anon and my Al-Anon family, that's right, those special love folks, and um, to treat myself better. Occasionally, now, I even like myself. <laughs> Many things have freed me from the pain and isolation I had sentenced myself to. One was a saying I heard often from one of my earliest Al-Anon friends. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. By being able to talk and write about my pain and fear in a safe place where others understood, I was finally freed from the anvil of secrecy which had weighed me down for so long. The second was an ever-changing and growing relationship I have found with the God of my understanding. I came to realize that my higher power had been with me all along, deep within my heart. All my efforts to fix, manage, control, and beat the disease were the best I could do at the time, and even what I needed to do in order to live with myself. The God I have found through the program is gentle, 
caring, compassionate, beneficent, kind, and loving. If I keep an open heart, I'm able to hear, see, and feel the presence of that higher power everywhere I go. Everywhere there is love, there's also the presence of God. And if God is with me, I will never be alone. One of my most cherished slogans in our program is progress, not perfection. I have learned that the human condition means that I will make mistakes, even ones that occasionally hurt others. Being imperfect makes me no less lovable to others, so being hard on myself really doesn't make sense. I've learned to forgive my errors and use them instead as opportunities to learn more about myself. Learning to love myself, flaws and all, is progress. And I take credit for all the peace and serenity I have gained and continue to find. I am working the program. Three months after my first meeting, I joined the chancel choir here at St. Luke. Every Sunday morning, before the 1030 Mass, we gather right here, over in that corner, to rehearse. With no formal voice training or choir experience before that, I was really out of my comfort zone singing four-part harmonies. Despite my insecurity, I found that it made me feel good and that it enriched my soul. Doing things that make me happy and enjoy is what I do for myself to preserve my peace. I now am even leading the congregation in song as cantor for weekly mass services. I still coach baseball, went back to school to get my MBA degree, I bicycle daily, opened my heart again to find a loving life's partner, cook, and stay involved in Al-Anon service work. These are all ways for me to reinforce my recovery. I still have hardship and struggles to face from time to time besides my many inadequacies. Some of these have been arrests and incarcerations by people I love. I've decided that it's not in my best interest to represent them anymore. My dad's death in 2005, 16 days before his 90th birthday, I brought two of my kids to see him the week he died, and I'm certain that going was a gift from God. All of my kids participated in his memorial service here at St. Luke. My mom's staph infection, which had her hospitalized for 46 days, and subsequent heart surgery. The nurses all liked the cookies I made, and it gave us a chance to move her to a place where she could utilize her social graces. My best friend's suicide. He survived for three weeks in the ICU, and I visited him the day before he died and sang the hymns from the Mass that I was singing later that day. My own plantar fasciitis. It went away this past August, after four years of limited walking ability. Being involved in a traffic accident due to a low blood sugar episode, I hit two parked cars on Lake Street about five blocks that way, um, 
lost my driving privileges. Yet, I'm healthy enough to take my bike everywhere. I go, and even helping the environment as a result. My mom's cancer and death last February. My brother is now the medical director at a hospice in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, and she was cared for lovingly until the end. My, all my choir friends sang at her memorial service like they had for my dad. Unemployment issues? In God's time, not mine, I'm told. Um, and at least I'm still eating and have a roof over my head. And healthcare.gov last month turned me down, which means I'm uninsured for the first time in about 30 years as of January 1st. They referred me back to the state of Illinois, um, where I have an application pending, and it may date back to January 1st in the event that I have any medical mishaps between now and then. Um, do you think God has anything to do with the state of Illinois? <laughs> I used to look at life with a reasoned approach and could explain my why my way was the only rational path for my family to take. I had a glass half empty attitude though, and in an attempt to manage risk would always start with the negative outcomes of a particular course of action. Thanks to and because of my program, I'm changing that attitude to one of gratitude. Thanksgiving has always been my favorite holiday except for the time when my mom challenged me to eat her rutabaga, and I threw it <laughs> Mostly, I think, Thanksgiving is my favorite because I get to cook and serve others. Some of the things I have to be grateful for are that my children and loved ones have a chance to find their own recovery through the connection with their own higher powers. Um... Just a moment. <laughs> that the White Sox were World Series champs just eight years ago. <laughs> and that my dad, a fan all his life, was able to see it before he died. I was an Andy Frayne at both of the home games during the World Series. And I even have an autographed bat by Frank Thomas, first ballot Hall of Famer. I'm thankful for Al-Anon 12-step work, and I answered yes to opportunities given me to carry the message to others. I'm grateful for conference-approved literature, some of which, by the way, is available on the tables over there. Maria's manning that right now. Uh, and for all the experience, strength, and hope shared by my Al-Anon family. Excuse me. Numbers are a good thing when you've got a list of pages that you might... Uh, want to be going through, 
<laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't use those today. my cookies taste so good and my answer is always the same it's the love that I put into making them I'm thankful for the limitless amount of love that I hold within me and the chance to share that love with the world I'm grateful for having a loving partner and fiance with whom I can share life's joys and sorrows I'm thankful for the faith, trust, hope, and partnership I have with the God of my understanding, knowing that wherever God's will takes me, that I will never be alone. I'm thankful for my Schwinn varsity bike. It's yellow and right outside that door, which my kids gave me three Christmases ago after finding it on Craigslist. And I'm grateful to all of you for being here on a cold night to offer and give your love and support. Before I close, I'd like to share a song authored by my service sponsor, Marie T. And I've asked for help. One of those things I've had trouble doing quite a bit, um, even since I started Al-Anon, from June on the piano. Please join me by singing along when prompted it's the right time of year for this particular melody, and it's called Let It Go. <laughs> Jump. Oh, my thinking is so frightful, but the meetings are delightful. And since God's in the know, let it go, let it go, let it go. books for reading and the slogans I'm repeating cause I'm not in control let it go let it go let it go when I finally call my sponsor and receive unconditional love I learn I am worth so much more than I could ever dream of. Now the steps I'm working harder because I'm no more a martyr. And since God's in control, let it go, let it go, let it go. 